Welcome to the broadcast. Every Arizona homeowner's best friend. Thanks for tuning in. It's Rosie on the house. Your weekend wake-up tradition. Inch by inch, row by row. Gonna make this start grow. Come on around back, Arizona. It is Saturday morning, 8 o'clock, the outdoor living hour of Rosie on the house, your Saturday morning tradition since 1988. And if you're following along in our homeowner handbook, you know this, ooh, this Saturday, April 15th, just something about that April 15th just makes me go, (laughs) but we're going to be talking about lawns. Have till the 18th this year, though. <laughs> yeah, I've been hearing some about that. <laughs> so you better get started. It, it's, it's usually around the end of November, December. My tax guy calls me. He's like, Romy. <laughs> Are you Romy? <laughs> and then well, he, call, and he calls you again on the 14th. I <laughs> <laughs> uh, can't hide forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, we got Jay Harper in, uh, third generation, fourth generation uh, gardener here in Arizona, and uh, we are into our lawn transition season, although that's another thing I'm uh, putting off because my rye looks so good still. Yeah, you know, and, and it's, you know, 80, 85, 90 degrees and cool nights. That's kind of it's, you know, so if you think back when we – we're initially planting our ryegrass in the, uh, in the fall, October. You know, it's actually a little warmer than it is now. So it loves this weather. Um, it's just a matter of how long you want it to hang on. What we don't want to do now is fertilize again, increase the watering, just kind of let it, you know, keep doing what you've been doing. Don't encourage it, and it'll look good for another few weeks. But, you know, as we get that, like we did last week, we kind of played with 100 degrees you know here quicker than we want it to be it'll it'll hit that you know kind of for good <laughs> and um you know the the ryegrass will start fading accordingly and just you know you, at that point you want to accelerate it <clears throat> you probably want to mow it shorter you probably, in fact you probably want to start mowing a little bit shorter every week now you know and just kind of start shortening the mowing height and you know, by the time you get to the 1st of May to Mother's Day, by about Mother's Day, you ought to have it pretty well starting to burn up. Uh, if you let it go much longer than that, then you're asking for trouble on the back end. So, you know, as soon as the monsoon hits, you might not have any grass left because it'll have choked out the, the Bermuda grass that's trying to come back underneath it, and it just can only stay dormant for so long. And it runs out of carbohydrates and stored up energy, and then it just it just will die. And people call all the time, and, you know, middle of July, 1st of August, go, hey, what happened to my lawn? It's like, well, you, you know, you let the ryegrass live too long, <laughs> and, and your Bermuda is now gone. And it might come back from the roots, but that can take a long time, even for Bermuda grass, longer than you want it to. So, you know, it's... It's kind of a hard thing to force yourself to do, but I would say along about Mother's Day, you ought to be well underway to having that ryegrass or wintergrass burn up. So don't do too much right now. Just don't do anything extra, I guess, would be the, would be the key. Kind of start the process now by, you know, hopefully you haven't been even watering <laughs> all winter. I finally just turned my, 
my irrigation system back on, you know, the other day when it got pretty darn close to 100 degrees and, and let everything get a good soaking. That's the first time I'd watered in months. Um, now, grass probably needed it a little more, a little earlier than that, a little more frequent than that, but you probably shouldn't have even been watering turf much this winter, if at all. So just kind of set it on a normal watering schedule. Don't try and, you know, really make it any better than it is. Just enjoy it for another few weeks and then be on your way to converting it, transitioning it. And if you want to take advantage of water savings, uh, you know, Jay's always said, if you really want to save water on lawn, don't do a summer lawn. That's the, it's not as, <laughs> yeah, I get it, in it trouble. More water. <laughs> <laughs> the the uh, code enforcement people don't like me too much for saying that. We've got to train them um, uh, to uh, disregard that. That's always been my case. Is number one, I think ryegrasses, cool season grasses are much prettier grasses than even the best hybrid Bermuda grasses. Just matter of opinion, but that's. You know they mow like, you know they you can stripe them and you're mow, you know when you're mowing they're just prettier. Plus that's when you're enjoying your lawn. I mean how many people are out playing croquet and volleyball and whatever we do on grass lawns in in June, July, and August? Not if, if they have any common sense, not much. <laughs> how many people play croquet well, though? Well, whatever you know, a bocce ball. How's bocce that? Bocce ball. Okay. I've seen that. <laughs> Croquet is just what came into my mind. I don't know why. But bocce ball or or uh, uh, cornhole or whatever Already, you do yeah, out of your hole. Yeah. Good point there. Okay. Well, what most people do is they get in the truck and drive north or east up into the mountains, or they go to their summer home, whether it's in Wisconsin or uh, Minnesota or Michigan. We have a lot of mm-hmm. uh, our listeners. We know that their second homes are there because they'll we'll often get questions because they're still streaming the broadcast when they're there in the summer and the ips and the address all come in we're like well we don't support that area like, no no we got a summer home up here we we live in phoenix the rest of the year we're just trying to get stuff done while we're uh you know a lot of them will get stuff done with contractors while they're not home sure. so that when they get home everything's in perfect working order sure. you know if uh so they may play croquet and bocce ball up there. I don't know. But anyone in the Arizona desert below the rim, what they're doing in the summertime is not on your Bermuda lawn, like you were saying. You're, well, you know, you're they, kitting up in the mountains. Yeah, they might do it at night. What, but, but my point taken is, you know, we want our landscape and our garden to look the best when we are out in it and enjoying it rather than looking at it out of the air conditioning through our through our Pella window, right? And, and just kind of looking at it out there. So my take has been, and, and certainly warm season turf takes a lot more water than cool season turf. And the only really increase in water we see is in the October when we're trying to germinate that cool season turf. So, you know, I, I, I kind of go back, we kind of need to, I think, look at, how the rest of the world handles their landscape and garden. And if you go in the Midwest, where these people all go to in the summertime, man, they pour a lot of time and effort and money into their gardens and landscape. You know, but come after Halloween, they quit. 
you know, they don't worry about, you know, because you know, it's going to freeze or get snow on it or whatever. And we, we, unfortunately, the heat doesn't cover things up, but it's just as harder, harder to have a landscape continue to look good in the summertime here as it would be in the wintertime back there. And they just don't even attempt it. And I think we get lulled into the fact that we have this year-round landscaping. And, and we certainly have some plants that perform very well in the heat. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, trying to have pots that look good with flowers in them in 110-degree weather and, you know, a, a lawn that looks really good, you know. And, you know, if you would see what a golf course has to do to keep their turf in pristine condition through the hot weather, you know, then see if that's what you want to do. <laughs> and in most cases, most people don't unless they hire somebody to do it. So I just think it makes sense. And, um, you know, that's really the concept of xeriscaping is to match your landscape to your lifestyle and, you know, minimal turf uh, and, you know, really only have turf you know, if it's going to be used and when it's going to be used. So, you know, there's my soapbox. And they're even trying to get away from the term xeriscaping because it just never really well, because nobody can pronounce it correctly. <laughs> it's not xeroscaping, <laughs> zero, right? E R A. So I think they're just trying to call it low water use or desert landscaping now. It's just a, a simplified term. And we just maybe try to get a little too fancy with our names. Yeah, I suppose, you know, but the concept just being let's, you know, let's let's be responsible with what water we have, which is limited. And we, you know, we, you know, we were in pretty dire straits this winter solved. Well, I think I uh, heard Jim Sharp say that only 2% of the state of Arizona is now in drought. And I forget what percentage was last year at this time going into it. So, you know, we had a nice wet winter here. That hasn't solved our Colorado River problem completely. It'll help. But um, so, you know, why not take care of the situation yourself before somebody forces you and tells you, hey, here's when you're going to water and here's how you're going to water and here's what you're going to water. Uh, you know, let's just do it, do it ourselves by landscaping and, and treating our landscape responsibly. Now, you can go out and plant low water use plants and still overwater them. Um, so you need to learn, you know, you need to learn how to water as well. And I think, you know, the folks at AMWA have done a very good job with uh, publications and education. And there's lots of resources and material out there that will help you know how to water and water correctly uh, to conserve water. So, um, you know, folks need to take advantage of that. And, um, you know, there's lots of things we can do. Um, and And that's just one of them. But I think matching landscape to lifestyle to season to uh, you know not 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 trying to you know make a a silk purse out of a sow's ear which is you know what we're trying to do a lot of times in in july and august here by trying to you know it's just you see the frustration in people with stuff and just like you know let it be what it's going to be for a couple months you know people in the midwest do it all the time and by the same token, then in the wintertime, you can do anything you want here. I mean, think, you know, from October to May, you can pretty much grow anything here. So, 
if you're new to Arizona, AMWA is the Arizona Municipal Water Users Association. I think I got that right. You did. Uh, but it's basically all the municipalities in the Phoenix metro area and now Tucson that get together to help educate consumers on low water use. And their website. Green grass round my window. Jay, you were mentioning Jim Sharp talking about Arizona drought conditions. And uh, for anybody that is on Twitter, uh, I I would guess he got that information from Jim Cross. Jim Cross, Uh, I meant, not Jim Sharp. I'm sorry. Okay. (laughs) One of those Jims. Who knows? Sharp Sharp could have been, you know, commenting on one of his colleagues' uh, content, but it's Crossfire923, and he keeps – he's in one of my – Twitter list as it relates to water and weather, so it's a, it's a real easy way to, to scroll and get a lot of updates, but his stats is that the U.S. drought monitor shows Arizona's, the percent of Arizona that's in drought is 1.8% currently. Last year, 86% of Arizona was in a drought at this time. Pretty drastic change. Big change, which we know it can do here, and... Uh... You know, our, our lakes are full and spilling, and if anybody hadn't driven across the normally dry salt riverbed, uh, it's, it, it looks like the, a, a river in the Midwest somewhere right now, a big chocolate milk running river, and my understanding is it's now spilling out of Painted Rock, so I don't know how, how full that thing is, but it's now even running on all the way down to Yuma and into the Colorado River. So. I keep an eye on the uh, National Weather Service predictions for the summer. And, of course, the monsoon is going to happen. But it looks like our good old friend El Nino is making an appearance. Um, they're predicting 60% chance of it coming back midsummer, which for us means cooler, wetter uh, conditions for Arizona. So I... I don't we'll take it. Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah. Hurry. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hurry up and get the lake levels to 100% and then wait for the new rain to come. Sign out. me up. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't happen often enough where we've got this much water that's pouring down the Gila's and salt and going into the Colorado. But, you know, right now all that water that's going in there, it go, you know, will end up in the Gulf. If there was just a way we could channel that back up to me, you know, how, how many – hundreds of acre feet of water could we channel back up to so, me? So I asked the question, and maybe somebody listening has an answer to this. So the CAP comes from the Colorado, and it goes to Granite Reef. And then it goes on from Granite Why can't they take that water in Granite Reef and instead of dumping it down the bed, put it back in the canal and send it back to the Colorado? You know, it's interesting you say that because I just had an uh, an interview with Senator uh, Sian Kerr, Sina. who was one of the Sina Kerr, who was one. I, I always do that. <laughs> Sina Kerr, who was one of the state lawmakers that helped get this water bill passed. Right. Uh, and they've got the. So we went to do an update because last time the bill had just passed and they needed to sign assign a board of directors to oversee how this money was going to be spent, and. One of the big challenges with taking the salt and dumping it into the CAP at that interchange is when CAP is pumping that water out of the Colorado, you know, it's coming from a lake area. So the, all the sediment has settled. 
and most of the water then goes to Lake Pleasant and it sits there and it settles again. So when you look in the CAP, it's very clean water. If you look at all the water coming down the Salt and Healer right now at that granite reef, it's very muddy. And it dumped that muddy water into the CAP and what that's going to do for their water quality delivery downriver is a big is the big challenge and they don't have a pump to pump it in at the time well but the pump would be the easier problem to solve but it's going downhill going that way i wouldn't think you'd have <laughs> it to pump is. it <laughs> i mean i have an it, answer for everything believe me <laughs> gravity so it's it's a water quality issue at that point in the interchange well beggars can't be choosers so (laughs) it's water let's figure it out (laughs) i think they need to put that on their list this doesn't happen very often so maybe a mute point but um boy it just it just breaks my heart when i see water running you know down the down the dry riverbed going to you know, and it certainly helps recharge groundwater, no doubt, you know, and it hits painted rock and gets dammed up and, you know, that aquifer benefits from that. So it's not wasted per se, but it, boy, if there was a way we could take advantage of it. Now there is a plan, uh, Salt River Project is going to raise Bartlett Dam, which will help, but that's, I don't know how many years away that is. So, And I don't know if there's a way to measurement, but what I had asked Cena and we're looking at the answer is so any of that water through the Gila and salt that does end up in the Colorado, let's call it a hundred, you know, hundred thousand acre feet. Well, Arizona has two pump out points from the Colorado. We always talk about the CAP, but Yuma pumps out as well. And each one has a certain amount of allocation. Could we just call Yuma and say, Hey, you're going to have a hundred thousand extra acre feet coming from the Arizona rivers. Why don't you pump out a hundred thousand acres less and let CAP take that out upstream? There you go. Got to be away. Or leave it in Lake Mead. <laughs> Got, yeah, even better. Got to be away. <laughs> All right, well, we'll get back to We kind of got sidetracked. They just there. need I'm to ask us, water, Romy. But water's a, yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's it. Water's a big part of uh, our landscape and garden. So it's uh, a topic that comes up, but we'll get to planting and spring pruning after this. This is Mike Clark with Day and Night Air Conditioning, Heating, and Plumbing. This is Lisa Sandoval. You're listening to Rosie on the House. And welcome back to Rosie on the House Outdoor Living segment with John J. Harper. Starting the first part of the hour, discussing uh, lawn care and prep for the transitional season that we're in now. Uh, I, I think, I think. Jennifer got our lawn shot this week, right? Yeah, they came by. Uh, Ray Lopez comes by and shoots his magic on there, and it's looking really good. Jay, I just saw an article. Um, there's some kind of invasive plant that's going that's going through all the desert right now. Is that a problem with lawns? Is that stinkweed. Yeah, the wild chamomile. Well, it, it shouldn't be in your lawn. You know, if you have a good, healthy lawn, you're not going to have many weeds if any um it's mostly an issue with you know gravel or granite areas or desert areas and uh, it's been a problem the last number of years but it really rears its head when we have a lot of rain and uh you know it looks kind of pretty from afar but uh 
It does. It's, it uh, really does. Yeah. But it's it's pretty nasty stuff, and I don't think probably even the even the critters probably don't use it. It doesn't look like for for food. So, and I'll tell you what, I, I made the mistake of going and looking at something the other day, and I walked through a bunch of it, and my my pants from the knees down and my shoes were yellow <laughs> when I got back to the truck. So you know, don't walk through it either. Uh, but. Uh, yeah, I don't, it's gonna. It I does don't know. have a stinky odor. Oh, it, it does. It does. It's, it's stinky it's, too. It's, it's it smells. Yeah. I can so. always tell when the horses have found it. <laughs> Stinkweed breath. <laughs> Do they eat There's it? There's a great. The, yeah, ho- the horses will. eat it. Well, there you go. We, yeah. <laughs> we can bail it. And There's a it to great the North Scottsdale shot that I didn't get. I was up at around uh, the Kierlin area, the desert mills. Desert Ridge? Desert Ridge. And uh, I was looking towards the McDowell's at sunset, and there was a layer of stinkweed covering the first 10 or 15 acres of this empty lot. And then there were the desert marigolds. Oh, wow. On top of that, behind that, and then the sunset on the McDowell's. It was a great shot. Mm. From afar. It was a great (laughs) shot. That's it. It's it's pretty from, you know, looking at this big blanket of yellow out there, but... uh... You know, it's it's certainly causing a problem, especially in the, you know, in the in the native in the desert, you know, undeveloped areas where it's, man, it's just taken over, which is probably preventing, you know, beneficial things from growing <laughs> as well. But uh, and some of it was so thick, you know, the, even the poppies you couldn't hardly see them through it, <clears throat> in some areas. So uh, anyway, yeah, I don't I don't know what the answer to that thing is. Who brought that in? I, I, I really don't know. I suspect that you know that we, you Birds. know, a number of years yeah. ago when we had a lot of dust, big those big haboobs or whatever they are. Oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I would kind of think maybe that spread it around some. Yeah. I don't know. They blew in. Yeah. Well, it, I know it, so many invasive plants we have in Arizona have been brought in intentionally with the. You know, with the big oops factor. Oh. <laughs> Unintended consequences of things. Oops. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yeah, I don't know how, how. It doesn't seem that that would have served much purpose and been, you know, brought in to solve an issue or something. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, with that, that list is pretty long. That'd be an interesting, actually, uh, it is. project to look at. You know, what do we have now that we wish we hadn't have done? <laughs> My. And and the migration pattern, like who who brought it in? Who brought the crawfish in? Who brought the stinkweed in? Who brought the tumbleweeds in? Yeah. Salt cedars, you know. Well, salt so cedars, were, salt cedars were intentional as a you know erosion or windbreak or whatever. So, I know. <laughs> um, you know, there's yeah, it, it's it's plants and and uh, uh, pl- uh, animal life that you know things that have been introduced, you know to thinking it was a good somebody thought it was a good idea <laughs> and, and then there's the accidental ones as well you know so uh, that, that would be an interesting list now let's talk about spring fertilizer because i know this is a great time to give everything a little bit of nutrient to you know just get ready for that that summer heat coming well certainly we you know we want to uh make sure things are in, in good shape going into the stressful time, the summertime. And, uh, you know, feeding just about anything right now is a great idea if you haven't fertilized. 
Um, you know, we usually try and start feeding, you know, citrus and some of those subtropicals and tropicals, you know, around Valentine's Day, middle of February, you know, and then again, you know, maybe here, you know, in another few weeks, Memorial Day-ish. So, you know, certainly if you miss the February feeding, it's still time to do it. Um, but, uh, yeah, having things, one of the best ways for things to withstand a, a period of drought, and we, we have this drought that happens every year here <laughs> in, in April, May, and June when we sometimes go, you know, 100 days without any rain. It's not uncommon, and it's hot, and it's dry, and, and, and plants suffer uh, because it's so dry. They're, they're transpiring lots of moisture, and it, it's, it, it's hard on a plant. And so a plant, just like a human, if you are nutritionally in good shape, you can withstand periods of stress much easier. So making sure that you're you know, helping replace or provide plants nutrients to go through those stressful times is a great idea. So, yes, you should be fertilizing most anything, with the exception, as I mentioned, going back to the very first part of the show, if you have a winter lawn, I would suggest not fertilizing it again because we don't really want to encourage it to, to be stronger. We want it to stress out and start dying here in a few weeks. And fertilizer... You've got your liquids, you've got your granulars, you've got your foliar. Is there one that's better than the other, or do you attack it all with a combination of of all three methods? Well, you use what you're going to use. The ones, the only fertilizers that don't work are the ones that are still on your shelf in the garage or the storage room. (laughs) And I, you know, what if it's got mold on it? See that all the time. They're rock hard. They're rock hard in a bag, you know, in the you know, sitting on the side of the house because they got wet or, uh, you know, it's it could be in the Smithsonian because you've got a, bo- a box of miracle Grow that's from 1945 or something that's still got <laughs> fertilizer in it. So the ones that don't get open and applied don't use, uh, don't work. Um, so you should... And that's you, not harmful to just put in your trash and let it go to the landfill. Yeah, I, you know I they heat have it up and throw it in the corner. You know, if you have a compost pile, you can you know you can take those things and kind of pulverize them and not you know and throw them in your compost pile. There's a number of things that you can do with old fertilizer and and uh, dispose of it. But if you're going to dispose of it, it should be properly disposed of in a you know in a you know I think all the if you go probably on the, your city website, you can find out where you take paint and you know caustic house cleaning supplies and things like that and fertilizers and you know they either have a specific day or a place that that stuff can be disposed of and make sure you dispose of it properly but how about we just use it in a timely fashion and and not have to worry about that so you know i mean you've got organics um which you know can be you know made from plant or animal parts you know things like bone meal blood meal manure products like chicken manure um you know and so your organic fertilizers fish emulsion things like that that people have kind of started going more and more towards as opposed to conventional or chemical type fertilizers but regardless of what you use the plant can only absorb it when it's in a certain form and they all have to get to that form whether they're organic or conventional, before that can happen. So we're more concerned about the soil as to what we're putting on the soil. Um, 
But again, it gets back to you. If you're going to use a liquid fertilizer, you probably have to do it more often because liquids are already in a soluble state. They're going to used up fast by the plant. They're not going to have much residual in the soil. If you want to foliar feed, that's fine. But that, again, very quick, very fast, and and yet, you know, they don't, you have to do them pretty frequently. So probably read the instructions on the container and see how what the frequency is to have its best effectiveness. And that might dictate, well, do I want to be fertilizing every two weeks? You know, maybe, but maybe not. Um, if I can go four to six weeks or six to eight weeks with fertilizer, maybe that's even more convenient. But obviously people buy a lot of things that they're not willing to use because there's, there's a lot of fertilizers in people's storage rooms and storage sheds. So just buy what you're going to use and make sure that you follow directions on how to apply it and what the application rates are and use it accordingly. More is not necessarily now, better. <laughs> Can you waste fertilizer when you put it out? And I'm asking this uh, for my own personal reference. When my I got three rows of fruit and citrus trees, and I just put it in my seed spreader and go up and down the rows. And there's areas in between that I know the roots haven't got to yet, but I just, you know, it, it's still easier to do that than and, and faster than going to every single little tree and being meticulous. So that fertilizer help break up that soil so when the roots finally do, get there as the the orchard matures or is that just uh wasted pennies everywhere well it, it might be wasted depending on how far out away from the drip line of the tree you're putting fertilizer but you know if you have grass in those areas the grass would take advantage of it um, the fertilizers don't really condition the soil per se unless you're using a an organic uh, manure based type fertilizer then you do get some soil conditioning as well as fertilizer benefits. Um, but, we, we, you know, let's talk about where you fertilize a plant. So the little hair roots that are responsible for uptaking of nutrients and moisture are not right up by the trunk of the plant. They're out at what we call the drip line of the plant. So if you drew a line straight down from the furthest tip of the branches down towards the soil, that's the drip line. And so the, that's where you want to fertilize, maybe just inside that and just outside that. Is, is So doing what you're doing, you're more apt to probably fertilize at or around the drip line of the plants. Even if you extend beyond that a little bit, you know, it's still okay. Um, once moisture or water hits that fertilizer and solubilizes it, you know, water doesn't just go straight vertically down into the soil where you apply it either. It, you know, it solubilizes, the soil absorbs it, you know, and it, and it, you know, it looks like, it looks like a drop of water. It's narrow at the top. And as it goes into the soil, it expands horizontally. And so you're also going to get some benefit in the fact that once that fertilizer solubilizes, it's going to move laterally through the soil, you know, a little bit at least. So I wouldn't worry too much about, you know, wasting it the time now you can waste fertilizer by feeding at the wrong time of the year if you're fertilizing deciduous fruit trees in you know november or december you know then they're not growing and actively taking it up and that fertilizer just solubilizes and and leaches down through the soil and you know it's probably gone by the time the plant starts to to grow and needing to take up nutrients so that would probably be the biggest 
waste is just fertilizing at the wrong time of the year. All right, we've got one final segment coming up, and we're going to hit a couple of questions from the listeners here, both email and text. And the text number, I hadn't given it out yet. It's 411-923. And if you've got a photo you'd like to send for plant or insect identification, you can email that to info at rosieonthehouse.com. And beautiful Arizona morning to you as we wrap up our outdoor living hour. Mr. Jay Harper, one of our questions here that we got this week was from a homeowner asking about painting their citrus trunks. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, having a hard mm-hmm. time finding the white paint because you don't just go to the store. The, the best acrylic paint that you can buy for <laughs> yeah. your home isn't exactly what you want to <laughs> slap on the trunk of your tree. Right. Well, so where would we direct this homeowner? Well, I, you know, most garden centers and nurseries carry tree trunk paint. Um, there's been a, a big shift to the natural color, um, you know, the go natural paint, which, you know, is kind of natural tree trunked colored and not white per se. But, you know, they still make a tree trunk paint white. And I would say try the. The, your local garden center hardware store should have it. I would, you know, I still see it, you know, when I'm looking around. So that would be where I would go. And what's, what's the reason or why would you paint your tree trunk? Good question. Yeah, why are we doing that? Why, you know, it's not decoration. Um, so thin-skinned or, you know, trees that, that don't have a or don't develop a bark at a young age, citrus, ficus, some of the ash varieties, some of your stone fruits um, will sunburn. If those trunks sunburn, you know, the, the, the vascular bundle, the xylem and phloem that are conducting nutrients up and down the trunk of that tree from the roots to the leaves, um, that's just right under the bark. And so if we get that trunk sunburned and we lose that layer uh, of protection then that, that uh, inhibits the ability of that plant to move moisture up and down from the roots to the leaves. Um, and, the, and the tree can just slowly, you know, die or struggle or, uh, you know, whatever. And it, uh, it can take a long time. So we want to prevent that on those particular types of, of trees by when they are young or newly planted by you know, you can wrap the trunk with a breathable tree trunk wrap material, um, or you can paint it, whichever you, you so desire, until the tree has developed enough growth and branching and leaves and canopy to shade itself. And, and many times, and citrus is, a, is probably the best example of this, it's really a big bush or a shrub that we've turned into a tree by pruning it up off the ground. And when we do that, we expose that trunk to sun and then it sunburns and then we, we can cause, you know, permanent or death, damage or death to that tree by doing that. So um, it's just something that we want to uh, want to protect the tree with a coating of, of some type of paint that's designed to be used on the trunks of trees. 
And how long does that last? You know, a good <clears throat> gallon of paint for your home, if you seal it up properly and store it inside, you could expect it, you know, to open it in five years and still have some life out of it. Uh, because I bought a gallon of the tree paint and it, I thinking I was going to use it all, but mm -hmm. th that stuff lasts. <laughs> that application goes, and so then two years later, I go to reapply, and I sealed it the same way I sealed regular paint, and it just it, it, it was a little different. <laughs> oh, really? Well, I suppose and, well, that I makes sense. It, it would be for different because it's you know it's it should be a different makeup, but heat might have had some factor in that. That's a. I don't know. I guess the, why it would, why it would be completely different in that aspect. But uh, if you live close enough to the garden center, my suggestion would be buy less than you think you need because it really does go a long way. I'm one of those people. I live far enough out. I don't want to have to go back to town to finish a project I'm doing that weekend. So I tend to overbuy to make sure I. Yeah, and it I doesn't don't have need to. End to up it, going into town again. It doesn't need to be painted. Like your house or your wall in your house where there's, you know, it's thick, thick, thick on there and you don't see through it. <clears throat> in the old days, they used an actual whitewash type material. So you took a powder, mixed it with water. So it was it was actually pretty thin when it went on and you can kind of see through it. So you can even water down that paint a little bit and put it on thinner. And then if you want to go back and put another coat on it, you can. So that would be a way to stretch it if you wanted to make sure you had enough. <clears throat> and the name of the natural is just go natural right you're correct and it is designed to exactly that look natural it doesn't so exactly chuck match so a guy named you're applying it yeah a guy named chuck robbins who is a citrus grower out in mesa who just passed away recently by the way um he uh his home was in the middle of one of their citrus groves <clears throat> and they just spent a lot of money remodeling their house and re-landscaping it. His wife came home, and all she could see was these white tree trunks. So he solved that by creating the one that was natural color. And once you get that all the way on the trunk, it does look natural. If you just left one strike, it does stand out. So coat the whole trunk to get a nice even. Jay Harper.